Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're joined by RBS Chairman Sir Howard Davies. Sir Howard, great to have you on the program, as always, because you have some great insight into what monetary policy should be doing or, sh- or, or isn't doing correctly. If you were Janet Yellen, what is your number one prescription for Jackson Hole? Is it to try and, and give market indication of when you raise rates, so very short term, or is it just to cool the markets and like, guys, if we see another downturn, we can deal with it? Yeah, I think it would be good if she were able to produce a clear and coherent message from the Fed. But I fear she's going to have a problem because the Fed have now moved into a position quite unlike what we used to see in the Greenspan years when the different members of the FOMC are speaking out in different ways and they're behaving more like the British Monetary Policy Committee, in fact, which, of course, has always been set up that way with independent views and and votes. For the longest time, of course, under Greenspan, there was never any sense of a vote, really. I mean, they chatted, and then the chairman told them what they were going to do. And occasionally there would be a dissent. But now you've got quite a spectrum of views, and I don't think she can put that genie back in the bottle. I'm afraid people are going to have to get used to noise. My own view is that there are too much noise can actually be quite damaging for markets. Uh, I think where it gets particularly damaging is where we've had here occasions when the governor of the bank has been in a minority, which happened once or twice under the Mervyn King era. Uh, Then I think the markets do get seriously confused. But unfortunately, I think commentators are going to have to get used to the fact that we are going to get different messages from different members of the FOMC. And some of it, as Stan Fisher said rather amusingly in his uh, remarks last week, because there are just some people who are optimists and some people who are pessimists. He gave three reasons for his view. And he said basically the third one is, I'm an optimist. I actually think the US economy is going to pick up. I can't prove that, but I think I'm an optimist. Whereas Leo Brainard, I think, is on the other side of that argument. But if you look at the hard data, I mean, unless they're really waiting, which we understand, for inflation and wage growth, they they should be ready for a rate hike. They should be, yeah. Uh, But, of course, what they're also looking at, and this is slightly old-fashioned monetary economics, but which has come back into fashion, is the impact of the rising dollar. Um, And so you'll see Stan Fisher say, well, you know, in many cases, in many ways I'd see an argument for raising rates, but actually we've had a tightening of monetary conditions through an appreciation of the dollar. Uh, And in this country, in a a more open trading economy than, than the US continental economy, we always do think that way. We tend to sort of look at a combination of interest rates and sterling for an indicator of monetary tightness. And that's the language the Fed are starting to use. Uh, it's fascinating. They're becoming a bit more British in the way they behave. <laughs> Whether that's go. a good thing there or not, go, we'll see. <laughs> well, put me right in my place. Good morning, Sir Howard. Uh, good Vice Chairman Fisher addresses productivity. I'm sure you're looking at it as well. Let's bring up the chart, folks. This is an early candidate for chart of the year. We're not there yet. There's the massive fall off 
and productivity back to the one-off moment of the 1980s. That's an extraordinary four-year uh, moving average. Sir Howard, this is front and center for each and every economy. Is this just because of technology? I mean, you were at LSE, at Seance Po. Can you state that the diffusement of technology across all of our economy has caused this drop in productivity? It's a very big puzzle. I mean, I'm somewhat influenced by those who say that as our economy moves towards an even greater dominance by the service sector, um, and of course by the government sector, that productivity measurements become more problematic. Productivity is, of course, very easy to measure in a car plant. Um, it's much more difficult to measure, actually, in a bank. Uh, in fact, in some cases, some of the productivity measures in a bank are a sign of inefficiency, if you like. You know, the more transactions and things that you achieve, the better. But some of that may not be actually particularly useful activity, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there is a problem in the way in which productivity is calculated in the service sector. However, that has not changed hugely, uh, and therefore we must be seeing something here. Um, I think that we may be seeing a position where, uh, you know, the impact, I mean, this is the Robert Gordon-type hypothesis right. in his latest book, um, you know, the impact of these <clears throat> technologies uh, has sort of diminished, and we had a big leap um, in the Greenspan era, if you like, okay. but now that's kind of leveled off. And Vice Chairman Fisher is coined the phrase ultra-accommodative, and as we go to Jackson Hole, the basic idea is, are we ultra-Jackson Hole? And in that, I mean, does the orthodox formulas, do they work now, or do the leaders of our economics have to come up with new and original thinking? Yeah, I think that the, the latter is probably true. Um, I think once you get to a zero bound, you really do need to think about what impact you're having with interest rates. Um, you, we don't really know what impact QE on the scale that it's been implemented uh, is having. Uh, I think there's some interesting thinking coming out of the Fed. The president of the San Francisco Fed <clears throat> has talked about the need to change the monetary policy framework and target a higher level of inflation as the central right. rate, which Olivier Blanchard from the IMF also said. I think all of that's up for grabs. <laughs> so I, I really do think we're entering a period where some of the previous certainties uh, are no longer quite so certain and we do need to right. rethink the monetary policy framework. Tom, we have Sir Howard Davis for an exclusive interview so we have to talk a little bit about RBS. RBS has set negative interest rates to some of its biggest trading clients. They all have to pay interest on collateral. Now this comes as a consequence of low central bank interest rates. This had actually quite a lot of press in the UK but you're not the first bank to do something similar. I guess you got a lot of press just because you're, you're government owned. Well, I think actually we got a lot of press on it uh, because uh, uh, two or three weeks ago we wrote to quite a lot of clients, including right. small business clients, changing our terms and conditions. I'm afraid this was a, a bureaucratic exercise that got misunderstood, uh, but, you know, hey, perhaps we should have reckoned it would be misunderstood. <laughs> the sound principle that if a thing can be misunderstood, it will be. Um, but this was uh, to put our terms and conditions in line with other people who typically have a provision that they can charge negative interest rates, which we didn't. 
So that was, in a sense, a bit of a bureaucratic glitch. The more recent one is to put us in line with quite a lot of banks in the big trading area. So this is on big accounts of collateral deposited for short periods of, of time. And you have to protect yourself against a position where you suddenly have a large inflow of cash which is coming in and you're not charging anything and then you're having to put it with the central bank and they're charging you. Yep. So, you know, I'm afraid that's a rather mechanical point as other banks have come to as well. You have unique insight because you're a, a banker, but you're also an economist. Are you very uneasy with negative rates? Mark Carney promised almost that he would never go into negative territory, but he may have to at some point. Yeah, well, I guess you'll search quite a long way to try to find a banker who is enthusiastic about negative interest rates. But as an economist? Because, well, I, I don't <laughs> like the idea either. Um, and I'm afraid, going back to our conversation five minutes ago, I'm personally in favour of trying to lift over time the level of inflation that we target. Because my concern is that negative interest rates set up all kinds of perverse incentives in society, people to hold excess cash, which is not a good thing for a whole variety of reasons. And they also mean that the central bank is not really in control. Once you right. reach the lower band, you don't know how the economy will respond. And you're pushing on a piece of string often through the banking system. And so I think that what we really need to learn from this is that we've probably got used to trying to target an inflation rate which is so low that for quite a large period of the cycle, you may find yourself at the lower band and therefore out of control. And that's what I right. don't like. Uh, Sir Howard, you know as well as anyone with your sterling academics, the idea of momentum or inertial force. I look at negative rates as a chronic x-axis. It's not that we are at negative rates. It's how long we have been here. Anthony, bring up the chart, uh, if you would. This is just two-year and ten-year <sighs> German rates. And I'm sorry, Howard, this is getting old, particularly when you look at the short-term space. The, the ramifications of this are simple. Don't we just have to clear balance sheets? Isn't that what all this exercise is about, is the denial of the need to clear and reset balance sheets? Yeah. Uh, what we've seen is, since the crisis, um, too little deleveraging, unfortunately. Uh, there was a very interesting McKinsey report a few months ago right. called Debt and Not Much Deleveraging. Um, and in spite of uh, zero interest rates or very low interest rates, the debt position has not been cleared. And we still have, I mean, governments, of course, in particular, very highly leveraged, but still quite a lot of other people as well. And I think you're right, exactly, that unless we clear off some of this debt, we are going to be faced with a chronic position of negative or zero interest rates for quite a long time. And that has a bad consequence in that when people then look at uncertainty in the economy and they say, well, supposing we do face a bit of a recession, what will the central bank do? And they ask themselves, well, we can't see what the central bank could do because they're at the lower band already. So that feeds back into a problem of confidence in that you're not sure that if you do run into trouble that the cavalry can ride over the hill and rescue you because they don't seem to have any ammunition left. Without getting you in trouble with the Queen or the Prime Minister or the Governor of the Bank of England, is the only solution in that balance sheet uh, a combination mergers and acquisitions? Is that the only place we're going? Is that Europe has to be more like the Anglo-Saxon model and get an urge to merge? Well, that's one possible. Um, I think that also, unfortunately, that <clears throat> the fiscal position uh, still has to be 
addressed. Uh, I know people now are worried about austerity, but I, I think personally that it may be that uh, taxes have to rise. Uh, I just find that you know, difficult in present relatively flat economic conditions, but I can't quite see how governments are going to deleverage otherwise because public expenditure seems very sticky downwards. Um, maybe some M&A activity in the continent of Europe would help to some extent. I doubt if it'll going to help the banking system a great deal, though. David Harold joins us now. With Harris Associates, he's a class act. He comes on when it's killing, and he comes on when it's tough. We greatly appreciate his perspective. David, emerging markets have been a challenge, large cap, mid cap, small cap, and clearly in the last six weeks on surveillance, we're seeing a glimmer of hope there. Are you more optimistic about adding value in EA in the coming year? Well, sadly, as prices go up, it's actually harder to find value. I mean, if you just take a look back at what's happened in EM, they bottomed in the late 90s during the global, the Asian financial crisis, and there was the problems in Russia and in Latin America, and that's when they were at their bare bones cheapest. And then as the next decade went on, the wall of money started creeping into this asset class. And by the time you got to the end of 2010, 2012, 2013, way, way, way overvalued. Our funds basically had zero in, in EM in 2014, yeah. 2015. And then, of course, the money started coming out and value started coming back to the surface. So people, got to look, people tend to look at this the wrong way. When more money pours in, they think it's more attractive. But prices go up. So the underlying intrinsic value of the businesses don't move as, as fast as prices. So we yeah. tend to like these things when there's price weakness, not price strength. Well, then you must like Glencore. I know you've been visible there. $6 U.S., $7 U.S., down to a dollar a share with a bounce here. I guess, David, it's up 100% from early this year. That's a great idea. But how do you discern a dead cat bounce for something like all the, the mining soap opera of Glencore versus really a place to buy more shares and add value. Yeah, what you really have to do with something like Glencore is look at value creation within the business and look what's happening within the business. And literally 11 months ago, they embarked on a kind of a textbook recovering to strengthen their balance sheet. Uh, their balance sheet was stretched, and with weak commodity prices, they needed to strengthen their balance sheet. And they did three things. They raised some equity capital, they sold some assets, and they cut CapEx. And now it's it's this year, fast forward to this year, we look at nearly 20 plus billion in debt reduction and one of the only major mining companies if not the only that will be generating free cash this year now remember a third of or so of their ebit comes from their trading operations which is fairly stable and then two-thirds comes from the mining of such commodities in order of importance copper uh, coal and zinc. Now, coal and zinc have bounced pretty strong this year. Copper, their biggest commodity, still hasn't bounced all that much. It's up a little bit, but it hasn't bounced that much, and it's below what we think is its normal natural price. So we think at this price, especially given how Glencore has transformed itself from a balance sheet perspective, Glencore offers excellent value today, despite the fact it's up well over 100 percent since, uh, since its lows. David, first of all, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be speaking to you. Are you buying, therefore, more Glencore? Well, we don't talk about current trading. 
But the, uh, what Make happened when that show, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, l- l- let me tell you, what we do is we price the business. And our belief on intrinsic value of Glencore barely has changed over the last 8, 9, 10 months. And Glencore went down all the way to a low of 68p. Uh, at the end of last year, and today it trades at 182p. So yes, we certainly added to our position quite aggressively when it was, uh, especially below 100p. We at one point owned over 8% of the company. Well, when the stock bounced from below 100 to almost 190. You know, again, our view on value, the value to the business didn't go up 150%. So we did have to reposition the portfolio, the uh, position in the portfolio. Uh, it's still one of our top two positions, but mm-hmm. we, we don't own 8.5% anymore, but it, we'll probably own you know, around 6%, somewhere around 6 uh, now, if, it, if it, it's, it's been weak now off that high, if it continues to fall again, the intrinsic value hasn't fallen, then we'll, we will you know, build up again. So it's all based on the relationship between price, what Mr. Market gives us, and the underlying intrinsic value. Again, price is volatile, intrinsic value is not, given us opportunity. Right. What does it mean? So Morgan Stanley put a research note today, though, and it's called Glencore Vindicated. Now, they're talking about their decision to cut zinc. Um, and again, they're also raising the possibility that Glencore mines may restart. When we look at Glencore 12 months ago, we thought this was dead in the water. Are they getting their mojo back? Yeah, they're certainly – they're always a company with a lot of mojo. But you know what? They made a, one mistake in my view. They just had too much debt at the wrong time of the cycle. They're, they're tough managers of assets. They're great traders. Um, but the problem is it isn't just their mojo. You have to look at the other miners in the sector. And a lot of these other miners just keep popping out stuff, uh, no matter what the marginal cost is, just, just to get cash flow. And, you know, look at uh, Freeport. Yeah. They have a high-cost uh, copper mine in the U.S. They shouldn't be they, – they should be saving that copper for when price goes up, not just keep yeah. flooding the market. And Glencore's good at that, as exemplified by the zinc move. David, give us an update on the well-being and future of European banking. You've been a big investor. It's been challenging, to say the least. Where's the light at the end of the proverbial Swiss tunnel? I mean, the bank stocks in Europe seem to be the recipient of any knee-jerk reaction of what happens in global geopolitical on the uh, global geopolitical scene. And it doesn't matter which bank you are. Just when they were starting to recover a little bit, they did start off the year very poorly. Just as they were starting to recover, Brexit comes and they get slammed back. And they're they're getting slammed because of a couple fears. One is the fear of what the low and negative rates do to their spreads. so this doesn't make people feel very good. Uh, number two is, and you mentioned it earlier, I was on my way in listening, talking about the Italian banking system. There's some issues there. And because of these things, uh, people are just are not at all at ease at deploying capital towards banks in Europe, despite yeah. their price and their price being well below intrinsic book value in most of these instances. And I would say what has not happened is as a result of these low and negative rates, you haven't seen a collapse in earnings. Why? Because banks earn money just not by the interest rate spread, but by credit growth. And we have seen low 
credit growth in Europe, and by lower loan losses and higher fees and lower costs. And these other drivers of bank earnings have been enough to date to at least keep uh, earnings slow growing or stable. And so as a result, you see, uh, to me, very, very good opportunity, especially when you consider the repaired balance sheets and the capital positions of these banks. David Harrow with us of Harris Associates on the Banks. And Francine Lacroix, you wanted to continue with this discussion on the banks. I did. I absolutely did, Tom. And I want to get to David and ask him about what we call these opaque assets, right, that we see in a lot of the European banks. Uh, Deutsche, Credit Suisse and Barclays say they're hardest to value securities, David Harrow. These level three assets are worth $102.5 billion. Should we panic? No, not necessarily. And what what's happening is that as a result of those assets being harder to price, they are, according to the Basel III rules, have to have a much higher capital position against these assets. And this is why you see a lot of these banks trying to trim slowly these assets. I don't know so much about Deutsche Bank because we don't own them. But if you look at Credit Suisse, they have been putting these assets into a resolution business and just slowly selling them. And so that's that's what we want them to do, in fact. We want them to focus on on the businesses they have, which can earn good returns through the cycle. Uh, and this has been kind of a painful process, but they keep proceeding in that way and keep unwinding of these what you, you deem as harder to price assets. But the reason, the reason why, even though these assets might be profitable, the reason why a lot of these banks want to offload them is because they require higher capital behind them. And, and as a result, uh, they, they want to get rid of them. Uh, some of these assets are very good assets and income-earning assets, but you know the regulator just doesn't care about that at times. They just, because of their illiquidity, because their difficulty in pricing, they want them gone. So that's that's what we see happening. Uh, David, in the when you look at Credit Suisse, so the share price has recovered somewhat. I mean, it's really quantifiable because it's a, a little bit, and the, and the share price has gone down quite a lot in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Is it an improvement in the general environment, or are people actually starting to see something in the bank? Well, this has been quite a story. They have a new CEO that came in last summer at about this time, and he started to review the bank, and he was the one who actually accelerated this whole uh, change in, in approach to, to really accelerating the move uh, to move risk-weighted assets into the private bank as, as, as opposed to the investment bank. And so he's accelerated this. It's ruffled a lot of feathers. Uh, in the process of doing so, literally, this, this company, which was trading last year in the mid to high 20s, hit a low in July post-Brexit of below 10. Now, it has bounced, as you mentioned, 1146, but this is still nowhere near where it should be. If they do this transformation right, this is a business that should trade for at least one and a half times book value mm-hmm. because the growth and the income that the book is generating should be a lot stabler coming out of that private bank. And instead, today we have a, a book value of about half of it, just a little over half book right. value. Um, and so we think this, if, if they if they could follow through with the execution of this plan, this this stock has got a lot more upside. David, uh, Bloomberg just had an article out on Bill, Gro- uh, Bill Gates' uh, net worth, uh, which is ginormous. And a lot of that is a recovery in Microsoft. Microsoft was a dog and a value stock for years. Pretty soon we're going to talk about it breaking out to new highs past 2000. 
How do you look at a value stock when its present P.E. is 25 or 26 or even 27? How do you deal with that world? What you have to do, Tom, is to normalize the earnings stream. Earnings are a flow concept. Think of a river. And rivers, as we know, get wider and they get uh, narrower. And, you know, just think of the Mississippi River at its source. You could jump over it. And where it ends, it's Louisiana and it's like a lake. And what you have to do is look at those earnings streams and try to normalize it. Not what it does in the peak, not what it does in the trough. And that's how you price the business. You price the business based on its normal earnings, not peak or trough. What tends to happen in the market is when a company is accelerating their earnings, the momentum players get behind it. They really like it. Yeah. And they're willing to pay a high price without thinking, well, where are we in the cycle, uh, in the earnings cycle? For, and let's not just price it at the peak. Let's price it normalized. And on the downside, the market gets very distraught uh, over uh, trough earnings. And that's probably exactly when you should be looking at a business. David, thank you so much. David Arrow uh, with us this morning. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Mohammed Alarian with us and uh, still in celebration of his book. Mohammed, what has been the biggest surprise of putting out your new effort? What has been the biggest surprise of the response of the book? Morning, Tom. I think how quickly now people realize that central banks have been the only game in town yeah. and how much people now agree that you've got to pivot to um, a more comprehensive policy response. If Janet Yellen is the only game in town at Jackson Hole, she does it with a backdrop of one of our themes this morning, which is horrific productivity. How can she even talk about raising rates, given the productivity and industrial production of the nation? I think because there is also the risk of financial instability down the road. So one of the problems when you rely on an incomplete instrument is not only do you not get the full benefits, and therefore the real economy doesn't respond fully, but also you incur what Chairman Bernanke called in August 2010, the costs and risks, the collateral damage. And the Fed has to worry that it's, it may be fueling financial instability down the road. And that, I think, is the strongest argument for trying to slowly normalize rates. And that's because Otherwise, you contribute to excessive risk-taking. Right. And actually, Mohammed, great to speak to you this morning. It's Francine here. Instead of squabbling over these short-term interest rates, should really focus longer-term about what Janet Yellen could do to counter a crisis. Correct, Francine. And that's absolutely right. Um, you've got to realize that the last thing you want is for your, your central bank to be ineffective. I worry tremendously about Japan. I worry that in Japan's case, the Bank of Japan may not just be ineffective, it may have become counterproductive. The Fed doesn't want to get there, the ECB doesn't want to get there, the Bank of England doesn't want to get there. And, and they have that at the back of their mind. 
So, but, but what happens if a central bank becomes counterproductive? And this is something that Governor Kuroda of the Bank of Japan would really push against, right? He even said today that he could go into further negative territory. Then what does a central bank need to do? They need to step away or just try something radically different? So two things there. It's not whether they can use an instrument more. It's whether they can get the results they want. The last time the Bank of Japan went negative, they ended up with a stronger yen. So they ended up with a completely opposite outcome of what they wanted. In terms of what central banks must do, unfortunately, their destiny is no longer in their hand. Unfortunately, it depends on other policymakers coming in and assisting them in battling um, sluggish economic growth. So it's no longer up to them as much as it is up to other, the fiscal agency, Mm -hmm. those who can implement pro-growth reforms, and those who can complete financial architectures. So what would you like to hear from Janet Yellen at Jackson Hole? I mean, she needs to navigate so the the longer-term issues, I guess she needs to maybe try, I don't know if she wants to, but redress the market expectations for a rate hike or not this year. So a little bit from along the lines of what Stan Fisher told us over the weekend. I thought his speech was excellent. He laid out what the economy has achieved. He laid out the big issues, the questions, and he acknowledged that you need other policymakers to step up to the plate. And I think that's the message you need to repeat over and over again, hoping that you get through to the political system. Well, I, I get the idea, uh, Mohammed, of rhetoric. And, you know, as, as Professor Fisher said, he's an optimist, and we know you are as well. The reality is economic data. Is Governor Carney leading with clear talk? It seems that when he speaks, he just says, look, inflation's not there. Do you detect a language difference between the rhetoric of BOE versus the Fed? You know, I wrote an article after um, the Bank of England's last policy announcement saying, wow, they were really effective. Why? First, they combined a range of policies. So not only did they cut interest rates, not only did they introduce a new QE, which was expanded, but they also had a new lending scheme, recognizing that they have to minimize, to the extent possible, the negative impact of lower interest rates. Second, that communication was very clear as to what they can do and what they cannot do. And they stress what they cannot do, which is unusual for a central bank to do so. Um, So so the Bank of England has led the way, both in being more comprehensive, trying to limit the collateral damage of ultra-low interest rates, and also in terms of communicating. The question for them is the same question for the ECB, is the same question for the Fed, is will the government step up to the plate? With us, Mohamed El-Aryan. Dr. El-Aryan, Francine and I have followed the struggle of Europe. And to me, and Sir Howard Davies mentioning this this morning, so much of it is a clearing of balance sheets. Tim Geithner talked consistently and persistently about this nine and even 10 years ago, the idea of delaying and delaying the clearing of balance sheets to provide stability to the system, as is Chairman uh, Bernanke. Why are we doing this? And when do we finally clear out our balance sheets? So the lesson, the lesson of history, not only from the U.S., but go back to the Latin American crisis, go back to the last decade of the 80s, is that if you have excessive indebtedness, bloated balance sheets, it undermines economic performance in a sustainable way. 
So in theory, the best thing to do is to go after the bloated balance sheet, recognize the losses, and move on. That's the economic answer. The political answer is who incurs the loss? Who takes the loss? And the reason why it has been difficult is because governments find it very hard to impose the losses on different parts of society. So the hope is somehow if you wait long enough, things will get better. And they do get better when you run a financial repression regime, as we have been doing, because you are subsidizing debtors and you're taxing creditors. But the basic problem has been how do you impose the laws in a political acceptable way that doesn't undermine what you're trying to do? And Europe hasn't been able to get its act together. It took Latin America a very long time to do it in the 80s. Um, the United States is luckier because its financial architecture is more complete. But that's, and actually, Mohammed, you know, go, going back to that, the U.S. is luckier, but it was also more painful, right? I mean, I have um, a, a lot of Americans every day telling me, well, why is the Italian banks not sorted? Why is it taking it so long? Let's remind ourselves that actually we didn't have state intervention in the Italian banks. We did here in the U.K. with the collapse of BlackRock, and we certainly had Lehman Brothers in the States. Correct. And Francine... I'm glad you raised Italy, because Italy brings in an added aspect that the United States doesn't have. When what, what you want to do at a national level conflicts with what you've agreed to at a regional level. Italy has a certain view as to how it should deal with its banks. It wants to protect the retail investor, quote-unquote. She or he has invested in, in, in various bank securities, and there's a good reason why you may want to protect them. But there's a regional framework that imposes losses in a certain way. So Italy is an example whereby not only is it hard to begin with, but it gets even harder when national objectives conflict with regional ones. Will the national objectives become more like the regional ones now that we have Brexit? So are Europeans going to get closer and actually watch out for their interests a little bit more? So, you know, if it has to do with the banks, will we see these bail-in rules thrown out the window? I, I hope that there'll be more sensitivity to national politics, and I hope that Brexit will serve as a wake-up call. Italy is particularly important, as you've reported over and over again, because there's a referendum coming up. And if that yeah. referendum is lost, yeah. and if the government falls, then you will complicate tremendously um, the political configuration in Europe. So, so Italy, in a number of ways, is a leading indicator of whether Europe adapts post-Brexit or whether Europe does not adapt post-Brexit. What is the T decision for the autumn of 2016? If I look at the only game in town and your magnificent chapter later on about game theory and about the strategy that must be uh, taken, maybe it's your, your wonderful chapter, The Keys to Navigating a Bimodal Distribution, I think we all get the phrase T decision. Dr. Larian, what is the T decision that needs to be made? So if you talk in terms of game theory, and I know you love that, Tom, as do I, then the concept of Mike Spence, the Nobel Prize winner, is incredibly powerful. The world has been playing non-cooperatively a cooperative game. So in order for people to be better off collectively, they have to coordinate economic policy much more. They have to be much more cooperative. But we are playing a non-cooperative game. 
And you see this in terms of the exchanges. The yen shouldn't be at 100 versus the dollar. That doesn't help Japan in any way, and it actually doesn't help global rebalancing. Interest rates, we have a race to the bottom that okay. is undermining the functioning of the financial what, system. What is the catalyst for those differential equations to get us to a cooperative system? I fear that it will, be, it will have to be a crisis. I hope it's not, but I fear it will have to be the crisis. The best moment of global economic cooperation was in April 2009 when the G20 met in London and took steps that avoided a multi-year depression. Unfortunately, the catalyst was the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. So I hope it's not going to be a crisis, but I, I fear it will be. And the only question is, how big a crisis do you need mm -hmm. to improve global economic governance? Dr. Larian, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.